Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Got to try to dig down and, and, and get some ideas as to just what happened in Russia uh, this past weekend. I mean, most of us woke up, I guess, on Saturday morning to the news uh, that it seemed as if uh, the group that we've talked about, the, the mercenaries that we talked about, the Wagner group, were marching on Moscow. Uh, the, the head of the group, of course, Yevgeny Prizhkokhin, uh, has been at odds with uh, Putin and his uh, his uh, major uh, folks in his cabinet, I guess, for quite some time now. Uh, but nobody ever thought it was going to get to this stage, or did they? Uh, our next guest is going to try to shed some light on that for us. Uh, Robert Hebert is an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary and also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, so glad you could join us. An awful lot of us are confused. An awful lot of us are wondering what happened and what the ramifications are. Uh, how did you react when you heard the news on Saturday morning? Well, I'm, it, it's just as much confusion as everyone else, because part of the problem in any war is the is trying to get straight stories out of this. Mm-hmm. In this particular issue, in, in regards to within the inner workings of Russia, and what could, and once again, I want to stress the word could, be some sign of coup-like behavior. I mean, that is big. Um, and so I guess confusion, uncertainty, um, those were sort of the major feelings I was having as I was trying to make any sense of what was happening. But in that circumstance, uh, there's going to be dissension, as you say, and, and lots of misinformation. That's that's almost as expected. That old phrase, you know, that uh, in war, truth is the first casualty. But was he actually, in, in your mind, was he actually intent on moving into Russia? Or was, was this a threat? Was it, I, We're not quite sure what the intentions were, what motivated him to actually make this move. Well, that's just it, because there's two schools of thoughts that's emerging within sort of those that are watching this very closely. There's the one school that this was a very serious military effort to attack the Putin administration. And there are those that are still saying that he represented a real threat and had a real chance of basically displacing Putin. There's another train of thought, which is almost the exact opposite, um, and that is he knew that his time was up. Uh, There'd been problems between him and particularly the defense minister for about the last month. There were all sorts of reports that Wagner were not receiving the type of munitions and resupply that he had been calling for and that this was the actions of the last gasp of a of an individual that knew that he was on the way out. And you can see the way that from from our perspective looking at it, they look exactly the same, but they represent two very different uh, realities for the Russians. And, and, and then it, that's, that's, I think, the thing that puzzles an awful lot of us is to just, you know, it was almost a suicide attempt. I mean, did he actually think... That, that he had a chance of ta- overtaking Russia and uh, uh, well, Putin specifically in, in the Kremlin. I mean, he has a, a, a very, very uh, elite force, of course. But uh, I, I guess, you know, there's so many sidebar questions here, Professor. One of them being, as much as he did move, we're told he was a couple of hundred miles away from, from the, the, the border of Moscow, uh, the, the city limits of Moscow, uh, with very little resistance, which led some people to speculate that maybe a lot more people were sympathetic to, to his cause than, than we're letting on, maybe even people within the military. Yeah, that's the problem, because once again, there's conflicting reports, A, how far he got and how many troops he had as he moved in. 
I mean, the largest numbers that people have been, at least that I've been seeing in the open sources, is that he had maybe about the possibility of drawing upon 10,000. I mean, 10,000 sounds like a lot, and it is by, by, say, Canadian standards. But given the capabilities that the Russians have, most people were saying that on a, that on a direct assault, they were going to be wiped out before they even got anywhere close to Moscow. Now, the question that you raised at the beginning, though, is the important one. Was he hoping to have further support within the, the Russian um, elites, within the um, Russian ruling political system? In other words, was he trying to get support from uh, of those that are against Putin as he moved inward? That doesn't seem to have happened at all. Um, there were reports immediately that suggested that Putin's regime was being shook, shaken. But if you look at most of the reports today, it looks as if he, the, the Wagner leadership, was the one that was really the, the weaker of the two players here. Uh, but once again, with these type of things, when a coup is actually going to be happening, you won't know about it till it has actually occurred if he was drawing from others outside of his organization. And that's, I think, what struck an awful lot of us was uh, what are his ambitions? Uh, did, you know, did, did he want to be the ruler? Did he want to overthrow Putin? Or was he just looking for leverage? Yeah. Or was he, I mean, th th those that are sympathetic to him go so far as to say that he was looking out for the uh, the well-being of his um, of, of his men. Um, you know, once again, uh, it's difficult to to know the motivations of this individual. Um, if he, you know, once again, we don't know for certain, but say just for the sake of argument that he was moving from a position of strength rather than that of weakness. And in fact, that his intelligence, his uh, his contacts were, were suggesting that Putin was, in fact, vulnerable. That would be one of the explanations of what he did. But if it was to have an overall coup, it looks as if it was pretty badly planned. You can't just simply take your troops in, moving in and try to come in. I mean, you know, we have a mythology that Caesar did that to, to take power. But the, the historical reality is that if you're going to do that, you need to have your people lined up on the inside. You need to ensure that the, the, the individual that you're trying to direct the coup against um, can't consolidate. And we don't see any signs that there was anything within Moscow that was showing um, rising up against a Putin. And so this is why those that are saying this was the last gasp of a very desperate individual who knew his time was up seems to be the more powerful argument at this point in time. Quite the contrary to your point, isn't it, Professor, that, uh, you know, the, the army seemed to rally around uh, the Kremlin. Uh, and I don't know what their intentions were, but I mean, the, you know, uh, if anybody, and I, I know that, you know, when we look at, at what's going on with the Wagner group, I mean, they are not soldiers by trade. I mean, they are now because they're trained in there, but I mean, they're, most of them are ex-cons. Uh, he himself is an ex-con and, and not trained necessarily in, in military planning and expertise and things of that nature. Uh, and maybe this was, this was, you know, maybe him being laid bare that he doesn't have that, that, that mind for that kind of strategy. Uh, because it just didn't seem as if anything was happening at the other end. You're right. If, 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 if there was a plan and if the oligarchs were against Putin, as, as we've been hearing about for the last, well, year now since the war, it's not going well for Russia. Uh, you'd think there'd be some, some sort of activity in, in Moscow too. And we didn't, at least didn't hear anything like that in, in the reporting that we saw. 
Nothing at all. And I would think that, I mean, the Russians have clamped down. I mean, there's very little freedom of uh, expression within Russia. But with social media and that, if if there were signs of um, of actions, uh, you know, the seizure of say um, uh, buildings or 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 the seizure of officials, I'm quite sure that we'd at least be hearing bits and pieces of that. And I've seen absolutely nothing. The other thing too that ties also to something that you said is that the historical record of a coup against a military leader in the middle of the of a war is very low. People will automatically, no matter what they think of the leader, will tend to 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 go for the benefit of the state. I mean, even in in in, in World War II, when Germany's on its last legs, remember there were a couple of coup attempts against Hitler. And and the basic reaction of, of the German military, as well as personnel, was to rally around Hitler. So, I mean, even in, in, in periods like that, that is the tendency. Um, and we saw nothing coming suggesting that there's anything else. And that's, like I said, that's that's why it seems like he was, it was a sort of a last throw of, uh, of a set of dice rather than a pre, really pre-prepared plan. Uh We've always heard that uh, that, that you know, Putin is one of these guys that plans. I mean, I, everybody is who's in a position like him, I guess. Uh, you know, autocrats, dictators, things of that nature. Uh, Want to make sure that nobody becomes a real threat to them. Uh, and it looked to us anyway as if Prashogun was at least heading down that road. Uh, you know, he had armed people with him. He had support of his of his troops, certainly. Uh, and and I would imagine that that Putin was looking at that and figured this guy's getting too big for his britches. If I could use an old colloquialism. Uh, and something had to be done about it. But I, I guess the question a lot of us are asking is, is what made him stop? You know, all of a sudden he says, you know, I, and he mentioned something about he didn't want to shed Russian blood. Uh, doesn't seem to have a problem doing that in any other circumstance, but something made him stop and go away. What, 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 and we're we supposed to believe it was the president of Belarus that interceded, uh, but he's characterized as just a puppet for Putin anyway. So what, what, I know we're into the realm of speculation here, but what, what happened there to, to turn this thing around, literally? Well, there's probably three possibilities. The first one is he lost his nerve. In other words, often in these type of circumstances, when the individual is going and realizing the type of odds that they're going at, if it's an act of desperation, and as they're getting closer and closer, they're realizing that they're simply not going to come out of this. Uh, that sometimes when you'll see individuals fleeing and just trying to to break down. We saw this happen in the um, the coup against Yeltsin, if you'll recall, where yeah. there was a, a number of, of um, senior Soviet, still Soviet uh, Russian uh, leaders tried to oppose uh, Yeltsin or uh, Gorbachev's regime. You remember the attacks on the Russian White House? And they just lost yep. their nerve. They got drunk, they lost their nerves, and they stopped. That happens. Uh, the other thing that could have happened is that he just simply started realizing that his troops were perhaps not supporting him in the way that they he thought they were going to. He could have seen that he was, you know, the troops were simply not following orders or following his lead, so to speak, and he may have decided to leave. And the third thing is something that we haven't figured out yet. Um, you know, was he offered a deal to get the, you know, basically to uh, to get out of town um, and he could uh, possibly keep his life? Um, and, and that's a possibility too. 
Uh, it, I doubt that we find out anytime soon what the real reasons were why he, in fact, turned tail. Does this whole exercise, though, the, the, from the time that uh, they started the march towards Moscow, uh, the characterization we heard through a number of observers uh, and analysts that appeared on just about all the major networks, I was well, probably like you, Professor Channel, surfing, looking to get this perspective and that perspective. Uh, but they all seem to, to agree that, that Putin has shown to be weak now. Has he? I mean, th- this thing has gone away as quickly as it started, uh, and he still seems to be in a pretty good spot right now. There's a minority view, and I, I tend to be a little sympathetic to it. If anything, he has shown strength. Um, once again, uh, on the outside, when you see someone challenging an authoritative leader, you tend to say, "Okay, well, there's cracks here." That's you know, and that's you know, you've seen the same stories as I. Saying, okay, well, you know, it's not as strong as it is. On the other hand, internally, and the suspicions are that Putin, as he is his norm, responded ruthlessly against this individual. And so what we know historically, whenever this happens, is that authoritative leaders use this as as an excuse, example, opportunity, to basically show anybody who's thinking about going against them just what that is going to cost. Um, so this may have actually paradoxically had the uh, the possibility of strengthen, strengthening Putin's regime because it was unsuccessful. Uh, presumably he's marshalling his allies and he's going to be ruthlessly uh, destroying um, uh, his enemies behind the scenes. So. Um, you know, that type of action carried out, if you have no moral, you know, compass where you're not concerned about hitting families, hitting people that may or may, may not be involved, uh, that actually strengthens your position as an authoritative leader. Well, to that end, uh, no matter what they may have promised in the way of safe passage, uh, what happens to, to Prigozhin here? I mean, even if he's, don't worry, we're not going to go after you. Uh, as you mentioned, Putin's reputation is, yeah, he goes after his enemies, uh, not necessarily right away, uh, but they tend to fall off balconies or they're poisoned. I mean, you know, there, there's usually not a good ending to this. Uh, is is Prigozhin due to that same fate? Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty clear that. And I mean, you know, there's all sorts of rumors floating now because he hasn't been seen despite the promises of safe passage and all the rest. Um, and again, uh, if Putin basically promises safe passage, and this is the paradox in, a, in an authoritative regime, if in fact that he has been promised safe passage and he shows up dead in the next day or so or poisoned or his family is is, is somehow disappeared, elements of his family are disappeared, um, all of that, of course, will terrify anybody else who is thinking about challenging Putin. And so it has that, par- you know, lying and going back on your word actually strengthens authoritative leaders because it, it creates that fear factor. Uh, we in the West turn around and say, well, you know, no one's going to trust him now. Uh, that would be harmful in, in a Western context to give you a word and then go back. And that may be true. But in 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 a, in a Russian ex, um, experience under an authoritative regime, no. And so I would not, you know, once again, pure speculation, but the fact that he hasn't been heard on, I would almost suggest that he's already dead um, at this point in time. But that's just merely me um, uh, being a little bit uh, joining in with, um, you know, trying to figure out what's going on without any real meaningful evidence. 
Well, I was I was of the same mind too, and we saw. I mean, the last I guess known shot we had of him was him driving out uh, with his troops there in a military vehicle and the adulation of the, the people on the street. Uh, but by the same token, I, I, I agree with you. I think Putin looks at this whole scenario now, as frightening as it might have been momentarily, as, as, well, I don't mean to be flippant, but a teaching moment, I guess, for his people. Say, here's what happens to the guys who stand up against me. Yeah. The other factor, too, is what's interesting, of course, is there have been a lot of people who've looked at the, the this widespread use of of uh, well basically you can't call it anything else but mercenary rather than regular forces and and what happens when in fact you do have these semi-private armies that become so powerful and so part of the 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 the, the um, thinking of some is that the reason why he was starting to not have his troops properly resupplied because there's been all sorts of rumors that what really started his uh, yeah discontent with the Putin administration is that he was claiming that the defense minister was not providing for enough resupply for just basic ammunition, food, and so forth. Now, what may be happening here, and it's even more fundamental, is that he may have been, or Putin may have come to the conclusion that he was becoming too powerful, even if he wasn't thinking of himself as power, and that this month-long squeezing of any capabilities to them was not a reflection of, of Russia somehow running out of money or political will in Ukraine, but rather sort of a repositioning of, of the who's getting the military. In other words, do you just simply give it to your regular forces and try to diminish the, the capability of the, of the Wagner group? Uh, or is, did that just simply happen? And once again, we don't know. So exactly. it could be that he was being squeezed out a lot earlier than people were thinking. And so don't know that at that point. Or is the fighting going so bad in Ukraine that the Russian forces are, in fact, having the inability to get proper resupply? And Wagner just happened to be the ones that got uh, the first cut. Exactly. Again, very tells us very different things about that part of the war but without better knowledge bases, you know, we don't know. Professor, uh, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. No, oh, it's always my pleasure, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Professor uh, Robert Huber from the University of Calgary. And as he says, more to come on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.